Welcome to the Star Love Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Beck, the Oracle in New Orleans founder of Inner Makeup Astrology. To learn more about what I do, visit innermakeup.net. And today I have Samuel Reynolds coming on. And it was sort of a, I don't know how I say it, like somewhat unfortunate event, but then synchronistically, it really works out uh, because I used to live in Connecticut and I was involved in the Astrological Society of Connecticut. So I still get the emails and I saw, OK, there's a gentleman named Samuel giving a lecture and I really liked the topic of it. But then because of coronavirus, it got postponed. So I thought, well, why not have him on the podcast? So that's how this all transpired. Uh, so I thought that was a good idea. So a little bit about Samuel. Uh, he's a former skeptic and has since spent 30 years doing and studying astrology. He currently serves on the board of directors for the International Society for Astrological Research, the International Academy of Astrology, and the Astrology News Service. He's a co-founder of the International Society of Black Astrologers and a faculty member for the International Academy of Astrology. And he's written for multiple print and online outlets, including ebony.com, horoscope.com, tarot.com, and New York Magazine. His home website is unlockastrology.com. And I've, you've written for other things, too, and, and been interviewed and featured. So we're, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. But the name of your practice is Unlock Astrology, which I love because we were just talking about this. I had a horary chart, which for people who don't know, those are the kind of charts that are charts of the moment. And I had lost these keys and I was challenged by another astrologer who said, well, I think it's more than the lost key. So I love this idea of unlocking astrology. So what are you trying to unlock for us, Samuel, and how can we get the keys to the door? All right. Well, thank you for having me, Dan. Um, so a little backstory until you know about how I came to unlock astrology. I had a very cumbersome website name before that, which was return numeral to the source.com. <clears throat> and it was also return to the source.net. <clears throat> and it just got too cumbersome and unwieldy, especially in doing uh, interviews and things like you know what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. So I really was trying to find a name that wasn't just my my name, but something that really you know dealt with astrology. Now I had a lock that I I had since I was in high school, um, a freshman in high school, and it only was busted open in, in 2018, mm. and so I had it for a good 30 years. Mm. And I just love that lock. I named it after my high school, Ken. I went to Kensington High School. And I, one time I was opening and I was like, you know, astrology is like, you know, working different combinations, almost like, you know, I have mm. been working with this idea of sco- sky codes, mm. of, of releasing these different combinations to like be able to see clearer, to understand, and maybe even unlock aspects of your consciousness. And this was all mm. like while I was at the gym playing with my lock. And I was like, oh, what about unlock astrology? Mm. And that went along with some aspect of my brand, which was to present an astrology that was both accessible and practical um, without a lot of woo. And this was you know, a, shortly after my fourth Jupiter return, which was very transformative for me. I, I guess we can come back to that, but I'll just bookmark it by saying it brought me back to my humanist roots without mm. the anger toward God or trying to reject religion but more so tapping into some 
some basic things I believed. So the birthing of Unlock Astrology really kind of ties into the moment of trying to get to, not to necessarily an essentialized astrology, but an astrology that really works codes, which is what astrology does, works codes in order to really unlock the person. Mm. Could you talk a little bit about uh, more about the codes, get into that? So, you know, briefly, I study semiotics, which is kind of the, the study of signs, um, and not just omens, but all kinds of dimensions mm. of signs and referent meanings in our culture, especially how we assign meaning in a culture. And the codes in astrology really unlock so many different aspects of our culture. So, for instance, when someone says to me, I don't believe in astrology, I'm like, oh, OK, well, what day is it? And they might say, like, oh, stupid, it's Thursday. Oh, OK. Why is it Thursday? Or like <laughs> if we were speaking Spanish, hueves, mm-hmm. you know, and then I would kind of break down as Jove, right, which is mm-hmm. so really some measure of even how we construct models of time, construct models of meaning in our world mm-hmm. really have a lot of basis in astrology. You know, it's interesting. Oh, sorry, that's <laughs> Sorry. <Excuse> me. <laughs> yeah, go it's on. interesting. Whenever people say I don't believe in astrology, what I think, and I would suggest to them, what you should really say is, based upon the standard of the scientific method, as of right now, I am unconvinced. I don't think. I think if somebody says that, that what they really, that's really the proper thing that they should be saying if they're going to be a true proper skeptic. Well. I mean, the skepticism has two prongs. I mean, one is the scientific skeptic or the mm-hmm. humanist skeptic. There's also the religious skeptic. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So the religious skeptic may say, I don't believe in it because the Bible says not to or the Quran says not to. So it could be that particular perspective. Now, you might argue, well, they're not really a skeptic. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, it could be someone who says, I just don't believe in astrology. Well, mm-hmm. what we also could say, I thought this is what you, I thought you were going to say. It also could be. <laughs> It, it could be like, well, I don't believe in it either. I just use it, which is another mm. way in which you can, you know, frame it. It's not so much about mm-hmm. just having to believe in it as much mm. as it, you know, like I don't have to believe in my lock or believe in locksmithery in order to use a lock. Mm. Mm. Okay, interestingly, you touched on humanism, and I, I think about humanism quite a bit too in the context of <laughs> what modern humanism looks like and what say renaissance humanism looks like do you want to get into that a little bit i mean you know modern humanists you know i i don't think i don't know how to say this a lot of i think modern humanists are so different than say renaissance humanists where you're getting into art and music and ritual being so intertwined and of course the heavens with each other whereas modern humanists don't seem to have that enchantment with reality. So do you see, do you want to compare, you mentioned humanism, and especially in your own sense, you know, kind of being mad at God, but the contrast between modern humanism and, say, Renaissance humanism. I would say the Enlightenment brought a certain level of disenchantment, Mm -hmm, which is both useful and then harmful. How is it useful? I think it's useful in kind of breaking open dogma. And breaking open the idea that we should believe something just because, you know, someone has said so. Mm-hmm. So I think the disenchantment that came from enlightenment was useful in breaking, you know, thousand years of the church, especially in Europe, the church's stranglehold 
on people's minds. Mm-hmm. Where it becomes harmful is that there's no real embracing of enchantment mm-hmm. in the humanist perspective, or I would say, no fully intellectual, honest embrace of enchantment. And what I mean by that, because and I debate a lot of skeptics on Twitter, or I have in the past. <laughs> um, well, that's been interesting and very instructive. Yeah. In fact, that's why I even set up a debate with an astrologer, a millennial, a zillennial. She's actually a zillennial astrologer. Mm-hmm. I had a debate last Friday um, where I played an informed skeptic and she mm-hmm. played the astrologer. Um, people can check that out on my YouTube page if they want to kind of check that out. Which can What's unlock, uh, I, you okay. can look on Unlock Astrology on YouTube okay. and then you'll find me. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but in terms of what I when I've challenged them, you know, I say <clears throat> you could break down love as just the mixture of pheromones and particular hormone levels, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you could be with your girlfriend or say you could be with your husband and say, you know, based on like my my chemistry, I feel that I have a strong predilection toward you that predisposes me toward amorous affection rather than saying I love you. But we don't say that. And you might say that to your boyfriend, girlfriend or a husband or wife and get slapped because it's like, what does that mean? <laughs> and and I think that brings up a very important point about meaning and, you know, astrology and then some of the, the problems with humanism is that we're talking about the quality of experience, not just like in terms of mm. the mixtures that we find within our minds or based on our neurochemistry mm. or based on what we can uh, calculate or, you know, observe in a laboratory or under mm. particular controlled conditions. Mm-hmm. So astrology really does hook into the idea of the experience of the person, which was more the hallmark of a Renaissance era. Um, it was also right. the hallmark and understanding, um, even predating the Renaissance in terms of the Islamic golden era. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it was mm-hmm. much more open. Mm-hmm. But we've since kind of shut down. And I think, you know, science has this purest maybe even slightly unrealizable, inhuman perspective mm-hmm. of what science should be. Right. And, you know, I've been lately getting into the Neoplatonic view as wonderfully espoused by Ficino that the heavens are entirely within. So it's there's something, you know, just instead of looking at things purely objectively that, you know, to quote a famous skeptic, but who was enchanted in many ways, but Carl Sagan were made of star stuff. Yeah. So... Yeah. Carl Sagan I, I is very interesting. Oh, no, yes. no, Carl Sagan is very interesting yes. because Go ahead. in I'm forgetting the year when this happened, when a bunch of scientists um put an ad in in the New York Times, I believe he was one of the few who didn't yes. sign Yes. And I, I, I recall that as well because he it was the what well, it was the statement of how many humanists and then he said, you know, not that I disagree with them, but he felt that it was too dictatorial. Mm-hmm. He didn't wanna Yeah. That's a great point to bring up. Okay, let's let's go back to to you. So one thing I was really interested to read about you is from a really early age, you were a fundamentalist Baptist minister at age 12. And I was like thinking, I remember when I was 12, I was being prepared for my bar mitzvah and I could barely get up and read my Torah portion. So I'm kind of like, wow, that's incredible. You were, you know, what was that like uh, being so young, but being what in an, in an ostensibly prominent leadership role? The short answer is I would not recommend it to anyone. I wouldn't wish it on an enemy scion mm. or mm. progeny. Mm. Um, 
but it is a common thing that happens in many cultures. When I say many cultures, definitely black, but down to the south and mm-hmm. you know evangelical circles for sure. Sure. Um, why <clears throat> I wouldn't wish it on anyone, you know, kind of reflecting on that experience for myself and then observing other young ministers and people who've come out of it. What I've learned is that it's more for the adults who believe, even citing scripture, and a child shall lead them, kind of seeing the child as proof of God and proof Mm. of God's grace and goodness and truth by the fact that these words can be spoken by a child. Mm. And so there's a lot of excitement around children assuming that level of power. For me, now, I went into it all, all of my own. I mean, I didn't go into it because of any prodding from my parents. Like, my father didn't even believe in going to church. Mm. He was a Christian, but he, he was anti-church. He thought they mm. were just a bunch of hypocrites. Mm. Um, my mother would take me to church. And how I, I, I came along this trajectory, I, I did have a spiritual encounter, but the spiritual encounter helped me make sense of some things that would be said to me while growing up in the church. So one time I asked my mom if I could lead a prayer circle. Maybe I was like seven or eight. I was relatively young. And so I led them in prayer and everyone was like, really impressed that I feel like I could just talk to God. And I was like, oh, wow. And they're like, you're, you're going to be a minister. And I'm like, am I? No, no. Right. I want to be a detective. I want to be Batman. Right. <laughs> or Superman or something. Mm-hmm. But it was like, I, that wasn't a thought in my mind. And what was interesting, my later bout with atheism was my first one. My first full bout with atheism came when I learned about evolution and learned about the dinosaurs mm. and all that. So that was roughly around 11. Mm. And I went to, making this a lot shorter, I went to a, a special needs camp and I um, came across a tract written by this guy, maybe you've heard of him or maybe your listeners have, called Jack T. Chick. He writes these comic book tracts and also comic books that people love to hand out. And I got one that was, uh, this, this is your life. And it was about this idea that at the end of your life, not only will like the events of your life play before the hosts of heaven and everyone else, but also your thoughts. And I remember I had this thought that when I was six, that God might be a renegade from another universe and then um, was was pissed and then made this one. And I was like, oh, my God. Well, if there is a God, I might be doomed. So I just like freaked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I really was like... <laughs> Oh, well, you know, and so I repented of my sins. I became a Christian. And then I had a spiritual experience that led me to go into the ministry. This was, again, when I was tw- was 12. So I went into the ministry when I was 12 and um, preached my first sermon on my mother's birthday and um, September 28, 1980. And what I can say in the subsequent years that I was a minister, which was pretty much seven years um, from 1980 to so I left, I would say just well maybe it was six years now and i I left in 87 and those those six years were hard because Mm. i felt like i um had to assume a role like i didn't feel like i fully could be a kid it was always this expectation like well you can't Mm. do that because you're a minister or you can't Mm. say that because you know you're you know you're god's representative to people and i was like oh my god that's a lot of pressure Mm. so that's that was difficult, especially when you have raging hormones and you just want to chase girls. <laughs> okay, just so I get the chronology right. So, you know, would you say you you were young and you kind of wanted to be Batman or Superman, but then there was something 
quite, I mean, it seems to me quite powerful that you were just able to get up in front of a group or lead a group, at least something. But then, you know, you became a minister, but then somewhat coincidentally, you also started learning about science, but then you were like, oh my God, there's God and I have to repent mm. of my... No, I'm sorry. Okay. Could it's you... okay. So I can yeah. go back. Okay. So in seventh grade, you're exposed to, I mean, at least in New York, um, about evolution. Right. And that's when I really became gung-ho about science. So I was 11 years right. old. Um, cut to 12 years old. Well, I was 11 go going on 12. So, mm -hmm. that, so that summer, that's when I became a Christian in 1980, um, having come from science and even like my brief bout with atheism, because I think I was only a, mm, an atheist right. for two, three months. But and, that's kind of what I was getting at. There was kind of some, you know, it wasn't like you would say it was not like one straight line. No. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. And then I um, then that's when I was pretty much religious and I stayed wrestling with religion and God. After I left the ministry, I left in 87 because I felt like I had too many questions mm -hmm. and I I didn't feel like it was right to preach to people with so many doubts and questions. So I finally stepped away from the ministry and God, or I should say from the church and God, when I was 23. Mm. So that would be the point where I had embraced atheism again. And even then, I wouldn't call it an atheism as much mm -hmm. as, I won't even say agnostic, agnosticism. It was more so kind of this weird mix of, I, I didn't know what I was talking about with God, so I determined that I wouldn't talk about God. Mm. So I just for convenience, I would tell people I'm an atheist. It wasn't so much because I think that's actually true atheism. Atheism, the best definition I've heard of for atheism is not the disbelief in God, is the absence of belief in God. You know, that's so interesting. Well, I have I have a few questions. I just wanted to. So when you were um, preaching, were you just preaching? Were you singing? What what did those activities look like? Well, I was singing before, so I mm. was active in the church pretty much from nine until about yeah. the time I, you know, temporarily left the church, or even before that, maybe I was singing in the choir at eight, maybe even a little younger. There was mm -hmm. a children's choir, mm -hmm. a youth choir. Um, when I was in the ministry, very interesting that you asked that question because, and you're from the South, so I'm not going to assume you're, you're familiar with Well, I'm with actually... I'm actually oh, from, from I'm from right. I'm from That's up right. north, but it's some people think I'm from the south, and I have a I do love New Orleans despite her <sighs> tragedies and missteps, <laughs> but but yeah, there's there's something you know I've headed south, but but yeah, no, I have go ahead, sorry. <laughs> okay, no, it's okay, sorry. Yeah. I, you're right. You did say you know you were up in in in, uh, in uh, Connecticut, but anyway, um, so in in terms of my bouts with um, be, being evangelical and the black church, particularly where people get to hem and holler and, and say, and the preacher goes and he starts to whoop. Or if you've heard Dr. King speak, you mm. know, and then we just, you know, have to rise up, or, you know, that kind of like melodious tone. Mm -hmm. I refuse to do that. As a, that is I, so interesting. <laughs> I, I made a conscious, very clear choice. I would not talk like that at all. I hmm. only got into that for performance sake when I became an actor later on or would play a minister. But hmm. while I was in the ministry, I never did it. I refused it. Hmm. You know, I remember my mom even suggesting, I was like, I had contempt for it to some degree. I was like, just talk hmm. to people. Why do you, 
Why do we have to kind of do that? It just doesn't mm. make sense to me. I better understand it now. I think there was some measure of truth to what I was saying as a child, but mm -hmm. I I also I can respect um, that tradition a little more. Mm. So before we move into atheism a little bit, uh, you know, you said you struggled a lot uh, with you know with God or this. You know, I forget how you put it, but the, the, I mean, because I grew up Jewish. Yeah, he, I, I get. I mean, Jacob comes to mind right away. Did you ever get? Yeah, I know. Did you get? I just want to, you know, it, was that a character in the Bible with whom you kind of related, or did that come up? You mean specifically Jacob wrestling with the angel? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. All the time. I I actually have a talk that really centers that talking about the daemon, which mm. I think that's what he was really encountering, his daemon. Mm. Mm. Um. But yeah, I mean that. But no, when I was talking about wrestling with religion, you know, while being in religion, I think it was more so the responsibilities and, you know, kind of trying to center my experience as a teen while also simultaneously trying to be this devout Christian, which was mm. in some ways way more devout. Well, I want to say, well, I don't want to say devout, a lot more fundamentalist than my family. You know, mm. even my mom was kind of like, you know, you're extra. <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing way too much. And my father was proud of me as a man of God, even though he didn't like the church. But he had aspirations for me that I think where he helped me to hope that I would help reform the church or be mm. a better minister in some way. Mm. It was just a lot of pressure, as I recall now. Mm. But I didn't, I didn't feel it all the time there, but I think it was informing me. I think it was really impacting me in ways that were probably more subtle than I was willing to recognize. Right. Okay. So then you said without using the term atheism, you became an atheist academic. And we could we could talk about the term atheism because it is interesting. I've run across some very beautiful Catholic theologians and they're like, great, we want atheists because if you're an atheist, you're talking about it. And I think the in my opinion, the proper way to be an atheist is to be like, well, there's not really a conversation, <laughs> or at least that's what Catholics tell me. So, or um, I don't know if you remember this book that came out recently from the journalist Sally Quinn. She was married to the publisher of the Washington Post, Ben Bradley, and she came out with a book called Finding Magic. And she identified as an atheist from really young, but then later on, and she's totally into astrology, like her whole book, so much of it is, so it's a sort of a book from a major journalist, somebody who was, you know, in the news business for a long time. But this idea, she left the term atheism because she felt like, well, how can I be against something that I don't feel exists? And now I'm more spiritual, so I'm not sure what it is. But could you just, I know I went on a tear there, but could you talk a little bit about you know, the term, you know, you just, you kind of used it just as sort of an identifier, but it wasn't really kind of who you were. Yeah, I mean, Sally Quinn, I think, nails it. And thank you for introducing me to her. No, I hadn't heard of Finding Magic. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, yeah, that that was pretty much, you know, my issue. And you, you notice I also made a qualifier in terms of honest atheists. Because an, mm. an atheist who spends time disbelieving in something, mm. you know, and talking about there is no God... Like, well, you just sound angry. You mm -hmm. just sound like, you know, you have, a, you have a beef with God for some idea. Whereas, you know, true atheists, as I've kind of imagined it and people, you know, encounter, especially if they're, you know, 
in particular cultures like in China where they didn't grow up with God. Mm. This, God is not something they're thinking about. Right. God's like right. they don't care. It's like a true atheist really does kind of like can live the life of the, fly, the flying spaghetti monster. You know, I'm sure right. you're familiar with that. Right. The yeah, concept, which is kind of sure. like, yeah, I'm not going to spend time talking about the flying spaghetti monster. Right. right. But many atheists, especially the new atheists, don't do that. So I think Sally Quinn is correct mm-hmm. in terms of saying, like, there's a mystery. And that's what stopped me from being an atheist, by the way, yeah. uh, Dan, is yeah. that I couldn't get away from the fact and acknowledging, and I think astrology was helpful in that, because I discovered astrology at 23 after seeing an astrologer and it it was a gift in the sense that it made me remember not just the absurdity of life which is a going back to some of your questions um but also made me remember the mystery Mm. involved in life Mm. so you want me to unpack the absurdity i mean the absurdity was i really had um i had a heartbreaking mind-breaking moment i didn't actually have like um a a mental breakdown, but um, in graduate school, roughly around 23 to 24, um, I was a graduate student in African American studies. And what I realized in my my deep studies of race and racism was how artificial the construct was. And what it really kind of started, it was almost like the second unfurling. The first unfurling was what I went through my freshman and sophomore years of college about religion. The other time where I went through that in graduate school was even much more profound because it was like the second time and this was much more secular. So I was like, well, if this isn't true, what is true? (laughs) So Mm. I was like, I I think I kind of reached for astrology after I had my encounter with the astrologer that was mind blowing because Mm. I'm like, well, if race is fundamentally an absurd concept and I suspect astrology is even more so then i might as well go for astrology because at least no one's died or been lynched for being a libra right right just, yeah sorry i'm so sorry because it's important but just quickly because you you know i was reading about you 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 actually you, i don't know if you're still doing it but you had a career as an academic right i did okay, could you, okay yeah, could I was, you just talk about that a little bit yeah i taught um, both in graduate school and then sometime after graduate school. Okay. Um, in graduate school, I was a, you know, a teacher um, in African American studies, multiculturalism, mm-hmm. and then I was also an English instructor for a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I became more of a tech trainer later on. But mm-hmm. you know, it was more English, um, you know, teaching composition. But I also, when I was in graduate school, doing my masters and Part of my PhD work, it was definitely, you know, doing that African American studies multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. Okay, so go ahead. You can go back. So you said nobody had been lynched for being a Libra. So no. that, yeah, yeah, so and, that, yeah, because you know what I learned in terms of talking about race as a cultural construct, and not, you know, and I kind of knew that, but it was more unpacking its history, especially from pretty much the 17th century, like Enlightenment, and we talked earlier about Enlightenment in contrast to the Renaissance humanists, Enlightenment in some ways was also an endarkenment in human history because right. it's fascinating right. how Enlightenment and empiricism also kind of like comes of age in the same age of empires, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of, 
you know, and I'm not making a direct link between empiricism and empires, but one can't help but notice that there is a, you know, even in the words. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, in terms of the emergence of empires and colonialism, which also, you know, impacts enslavement um, and the oppression of peoples, indigenous peoples around the world, it, and then the constructs that come with that in terms of who these people are or have been, I was like, oh, wow. So this, you know, as I'm talking about Afrocentrism, which is what I was studying in grad school and talking about looking at things from a black or African point of view, I'm still using the same constructs that were used to define me. Mm. So how is that liberation? Mm -hmm. And I, you know, that was kind of like the break. <laughs> mm, like mm. what am i doing you know and it's so, kind of yeah it's the, it, it would be like defining it would be like using heterosexual concepts to kind of define one's sexuality as a homosexual or gay right and it's just it's too limiting which is why we're always grateful to Foucault and others for breaking that open right so anyway okay so you're saying around that time that's when you went to an astrologer and you had this mind-blowing experience that's around correct. that Okay, so what was that like? Well, it was, I, I have to kind of say, you know, true to my skeptical roots. Now, I had <laughs> I had gone to get other kinds of readings, um, like from a Babalao, Odu readings from mm. in the Yoruba tradition. Um, I was friendly to numerology. Mm. I had tarot cards, um, the cartouche, Egyptian-themed cards. Mm. But for some reason, I hated astrology. Mm. And maybe it was going back to you know, my time in the ministry, but I um, still just found it incredulous. And mm. I, bef I befriended this Gemini who, well, she befriended me, really, who I had a crush on. She was an older <laughs> woman. But she had a good sense not to humor me or lead me on, but she was like, no, nah, that's not going to happen, baby. But, you know, we're going to be friends. But she was of this mind, because I'm on the cusp between Scorpio and Sagittarius, 11-22, mm. November 22nd. And she was of the mind, like, no, nah, you're a Scorpio. And I was like, no, 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 that doesn't make sense. You know, like I'm broad-minded, blah, blah. When I read Scorpio, yeah. it doesn't sound like me. I mean, I feel like more Sag. If I, and I had to choose between the arachnid and the centaur, I'd rather be the centaur. She's like, mm -hmm. no, I think you're a Scorpio. <laughs> Long story short, I was looking for a very arcane book. And I won't get too much in the backstory um, of it. I, I just wanted it because I wanted to, in some way, show I was an adult. Because I was denied this book when I was mm -hmm. a kid. And it was mm -hmm. you know, related to magic. And um, so I found it at this, you know, shop in North Philly, and the guy, you know, turns out was an astrologer, and he's like, I can do your chart for you. So I was like, oh, that might be a cool way to shut, you know, she was a Gemini, my friend, to shut my mm -hmm. friend up, and once and for all, answer that I'm a centaur, a Sag. <laughs> so the first thing he says to me, I'm a Sag, a Scorpio, and he's looking at my chart, and I'm like, all right, he's, all, he's lost me. And the first 15 minutes, he was telling me things that was sort of confirming why I hated astrology, because I'm like, well, you know, this is this clear, like, you know, sight reading, you know, like you can just see me and kind of conjecturing, like, you, you don't know what I look like fully, or you don't have full sense of me. I'm short. So he's like, oh, it looks like you had some trouble. Your mom had some trouble while carrying you. I'm like, yeah, I mean, like I'm four feet 11. Statistically, something probably is different for me. <laughs> right? That's not really that hard to deduce. I didn't say that, but I was just like listening to him like, okay. But then he started talking about some dynamics um, that happened between my mother and my brother and my father in utero that wow. went beyond 
guesswork. He was like, there's some problem, something that happened, you know, some secret or some issue. And I was like, how do you know that? And then that's kind of where, like, <laughs> I revealed I was a Scorpio. Because, like, how do you mm-hmm. know my secrets? And then two, mm-hmm. <laughs> two, it was like, I've been to many readers, and that was very specific. I mean, mm-hmm. I had almost written, had a, you know, unwritten catalog of, like, the kinds of things readers do. And it wasn't completely bad, but I was just like, that, that's weird. Like, how do you know that? And he tried to explain, you know, looking at the chart, and I was like, no, no, no. So I had to understand how this worked. And, long, you know, cut to another interesting thing. I was talking to this woman in my graduate housing about it, about the experience. And then on a lark, because now, you know, astrology was this thing, I said, when's your birthday? November 22nd. I was like, wait, 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 that's my birthday. Oh, what year? November 22nd, 1967. Wait, that's the same year I was born. Yeah. <laughs> So that was just too weird. I was like, all these coincidences mm-hmm. that, you know, I would I would feel like, oh, this there's some there's something to this. And I have to understand what it is. And, and then, I, so I spent 10 years yeah. really trying to disprove it, but really right. trying to prove it to myself. Both work. Mm. But I just mm. couldn't believe it. Right. And that it's you. I was reading that that it sort of launched you on this exploration of so many you and you went into a lot of different forms of astrology. It wasn't just like, you know what, I'm just going to do one form of astrology and stick with that. But you you really did a lot. Right. I mean, different yeah, forms I did of astrology. In a very short yeah. Time, in a very short period of time. So my first 10 years, I just knew astrology from what I could scavenge at mm-hmm. commercial books like borders or mm-hmm. um barnes and noble mm-hmm. and those books largely were of the psychological bent but i didn't mm-hmm. know their forms of astrology mm-hmm. just as i was leaving or thinking about leaving my studies in astrology and just at the brink of 2000 because i was getting bored with just like oh you can just tell me about my psychology and it all sounds freudian i was and i've always been suspicious <laughs> of freud i've always yeah. been suspicious and somewhat of jung less of jung but somewhat both for you know a reason that we don't have time to get into then i discovered medieval astrology thanks to robert zoller mm-hmm. and started studying medieval astrology a lot of things started making sense and as i started going to astrology conferences i became exposed to different forms of astrology and doing the certifications for ncgr you have to become familiar with different forms of astrology you have to study them so mm-hmm. when i study you know true to my mercury and scorpio form i really study so i really will get into them Mm-hmm. You know, like, so I've studied um, Uranian, uh, now called symmetrical astrology. Mm-hmm. I do know psychological astrology, you know, both now Hellenistic. Um, mm-hmm. I, I studied esoteric astrology with Alan Oaken for a time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's kind of, it, you know, I, I off and on study Vedic astrology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I kind of just I'm curious about all things astrological to see how they correlate or where they differ. Mm. Um, so that kind of also takes me, you know, in multiple directions. I, now I study also vibrational astrology. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was supposed to be at a vibrational astrology conference right now. I was going to mm-hmm. be in Kingsville, but that was put online. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I'm open to astrology. But going back to, so you know, looking, reading some of your stuff, you're, I mean, wow, that's a lot to, you know, study and look into, as you said, Mercury and Scorpio, you want to dig deep, but you still like to bring it down to a practical, realistic level. So how do you see that between, you know, needing sort of the academic, theoretical, 
resources of astrology, but then still, you know, having the stars fall down to us that we can use it here on Earth. Yes. So there, there are two conduits to that, or maybe there are at least more than two, but two that, that immediately leap to mind. Mm-hmm. One, one that really moves me is that ultimately people who come to us as astrologers, more often than not, they're in pain. Mm-hmm. And what directs my attention, what directs and commands my, my focus is in some feeble way, to lay, relieve that pain. I don't have the aspiration to cure it because that's not necessarily my job and what we think can happen in an hour-long session. I am also not a therapist. Mm-hmm. But I I want to at least give some measure of help. So help comes not from theory, but the distillation of what's important for someone to know um, in that particular moment Mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. terms of what does it say so that's mm-hmm. one particular you know point of direction the other one is from experience and particularly i think i've learned a lot from the school of twitter oh um, really wow. being on twitter for 10 years i mean i was on i got on in wow. 2009 and so that was really at an interesting part of my career because i you know i you know, become cert- you know, certified in three levels with NCGR by that point. I had some practice. I even at that point also had my own online school, mm. so which was called the Astrology Career Institute. Mm. Um, pretty much been scrubbed from my website because I felt like there's no need to really talk about some things that, that's defunct. But mm-hmm. um, why I think Twitter was helpful and then, you know, subsequently even talking to clients was it got me really out of astrologies and focus so much on just how astro- astrologers just talk to each other. So, for instance, I would tweet, you know, something like, uh, well, the moon is void in Aries today, blah, blah, blah. And I would get immediate feedback from, you know, someone responding like, my moon's in Libra. What does that mean for Libra? Mm-hmm. Or my son, I'm a Libra. What does that mean for Libra? Or what's a void moon? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> I'm so used to talking to astrologers. Right, right. That... I'm not really being accessible to people. So mm-hmm. it really got me looking at how I talk about astrology and how I write about astrology. Mm-hmm. Um, what also got me was writing more for the public about astrology, like whether mm-hmm. that was writing for tarot.com or, you know, especially writing for The Cut. Um, that was transformative in terms of my writing. Ebony, looking back on my time writing for ebony i would say that i still had some bad habits but i was so excited in terms of my writing um writing for a black publication writing and that ebony was willing to kind of you know do this both in print and online because i I couldn't think of a black publication that had done both essence had always had horoscopes Mm -hmm. but they didn't have horoscopes online Mm. um so i thought it was such a an honor um but I think sometimes I was too abstract, but really mm. writing for the cut, and it wasn't even directly writing for the cut. It's actually when I got cut from the cut <laughs> that I, I realized, because um, I got cut from the cut by someone who even says of herself that she's a non-astrologer mm. um, who is now writing for them. And a long story short, you know, there's something called their, their flesh Kincaid scale in your Microsoft Word if you use Microsoft Office, mm. and it really talks about 
at what level or grade level do you write? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I remember when I was, um, I, I mean, I haven't used that in years, but I remember in whatever, middle school and high school, all right, is my writing level at, you know, a high level? <laughs> what is it a low level or whatnot? So that, oh, yeah, okay, cool. That's, that brings up a kind of a funny memory for me. <laughs> oh, good. So when, when I got... When I got cut and I was pissed. When I, you got cut from the cut, right? <laughs> yep. When I got cut from the cut, I took the article of my replacement and I put it in the Word file. And I was like, well, you know, because when, when I read what she read, I was like, the fuck is she talking about? I mean, like, it just was so abstract and weird for me. But what I learned looking at the, her, you know, grade level, it was pretty much at a fourth or fifth grade level. Mm-hmm. And I was writing at that time at 11th and 12th grade level mm-hmm. i was like huh i i and uh, you know people might say oh you didn't need to dumb it down i don't think that's fair i don't think that's a correct way to, to assess it what i learned from her is not that she dumbs it down but she writes in a way because you know writing like that isn't so much about the words you use it's mm-hmm. also your sentence construction sure Sure. It's also your paragraphs. Mm-hmm. And so it was really eye-opening to think about how we write and communicate to the public. And, and that goes along with something else I like to say. You know, a lot of astrology books, even written for astrologers or people who are a little more advanced, they're written very they're very bad, written mm-hmm. very, very badly. Um, and they also, like, you know, cumbersome sentences, cumbersome structures. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think... Some measure of like unlocking astrology, you know, relating to the public is keeping it simple and clear. So you were saying, okay, you you learned this, but when you were writing for Ebony, your writing was a little bit too abstract. What do you mean by that? Well, sometimes I would reference some astrology and I think I was struggling to find my voice. So at Mm. times I would, you know, try to be hip or because I was on Twitter Mm. and using some, Mm -hmm. you know, Twitter language Mm -hmm. um, and hashtags. How I might describe myself for the Ebony journey was I was trying so damn hard. Mm. And I, you know, I was, I guess I was tense about it because it was my first big writing gig with mm-hmm. astrology. Sure. And um, so now in retrospect, I could see where it was really, you know, trying too hard. Whereas when I would talk to, tw- you know, talk about astrology on Twitter, I don't know. And my editor even said something like that. It's like, well, I want you to write these like you write on Twitter. And I'm like, I don't know what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) So it's hard to find that voice because that's how she found me on Twitter, by the way. Oh, okay. Okay. And I mean, you really, I mean, you've written for some major publications and been featured. I mean, you were recently, I was looking at this in The New Yorker. Um, I didn't write that though. I was, I was mentioned. Sure, you're. I mean, but still, that's you know, it's huge. Um, and then also, you know, and this got really heated. But I was reading the transcript of this. You were on Bill Nye Saves the World, and that was, yeah, that was really that was something. I mean, the the knives are out on that one. So I Wait, mean, we, pause for huh? a second. Pause yeah. for a second. You don't have to pause the recording, but there's a transcript of that. I think yeah, I th- think there was. There was a transcript somewhere. Um, cool. If you could yeah. send me the link for that, because I could use that. Okay, um, let me make, let me make a note to do that. Hold on. Yeah. Okay, go go ahead. Talk, go on. So, what were you going to ask me? You're going to ask me a question. No, that. just I mean, we don't have time to get into the whole thing of that, but I mean, what was that like? I mean, the it's not, you know, the 
you know, there are honestly there are very fine skeptical arguments and, you know, they deserve time and attention. And, you know, to what did it was F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know, the, the mark of maturity is to hold two ideas at once in the mind and all this. But then if you're on a show like that, I mean, it's almost like you don't get a chance to respond or this kind of thing. It's more well, sort of. Or go, but yeah. go ahead. What was well, your experience? I knew like? I was going into the lion's den, but I, I anticipated that there would only be two lions, but there were three. Ah. Um, I also, and the third line was Bill. So I, I thought Bill was going to play more moderator mm -hmm. to the two other skeptics who flanked me, but he also was in the fray. I also made a mistake. I mean, it was a very educational experience. I'm very grateful for it, but I do want like a rematch. Even though I, <laughs> I did well enough with him, I want a rematch because my mistake was I didn't realize, I was trying to think while I was on his show, like, I was trying to be deaf. I was too deferential. I was like, I'm on someone mm -hmm. else's show. Um, right. You know, I want to, you know, respect that it's his show. Whereas I observed from my, you know, co-panelists, as soon as the lights came on, they were on. Mm. Like, it's showtime. And they were, like, right. ready to go. And I was like, oh, who are these people I was just talking to in the green room? It's not the same people. Right, um, right. They were kind of mellow. And I was like, oh, so that's what I need to do with TV. Mm -hmm. I didn't really kind of try to turn it on and, you know, mm -hmm. like go pound for pound with Bill mm -hmm. as much as like, OK, I expected a lot more of a, you know, you know, I guess mm, like a real discussion. <laughs> but yeah. It was more yeah. just for television. I was like, OK, I won't ever make that mistake again. Right. Right. And that's when I got called to Chris Brennan's show. Mm -hmm. and he was just like, you know, taking me to task for it somewhat. Right. So OK, so what I mean, I guess, you know, quickly, what would. What would be the criticism against you in that situation? I mean, it seems, I mean, I can empathize. Like if you're, you know, the knives are out for you. It's kind of, a, it's a tough situation to be in. But what, you know, what might you have said differently? I, I might have been more willing to put Bill on the spot. Okay. So for instance, when he put me in the hot seat to say, you make a good living as an astrologer. I thought that was a lead up to like a, what I thought, assuming would be a better question or another follow-up question, but it wasn't. He was making an inference that, you know, like, you make good money kind of being a a, a fraud, right? Right, right. No, I probably would say, like, and if he had said, like, oh, you make a good living as an astrologer, I probably would say not as good as you being, like, someone who's not a scientist advocating for science. Right, right. <laughs> you know? So I, I would flip it. I would flip a lot more faster. Mm-hmm. Um... And then I also I think I made, you know, good arguments for astrology. And and also I I did throw them off because they expected me to defend astrology as a science. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't think it's a science. But right. now what? I mean, like, OK, let's, let's go on the next because I knew that's where he wanted me to go. And I knew that's not where I was going to go. Right. And it's not. And that's not just rhetorical. It's actually what I believe. So right, and then I mean I don't think we have time to go into this today. Sure, but the I whole what what is science of astrology? What is divination? What you know we can get in that's but but I'm actually you know it's interesting you because these are really heavy top topics we're talking about. But you know just getting to know you a little bit and some of your I mean you have a big online presence. I love your style. I mean Thank your you, fashion. Sir. Yeah. So you know let's get you on TV again. And I love your cardigans, your bow ties hats where does your style come from and how do you approach style oh my god well <laughs> you know i really you know when i go through like instagram i'm always fascinated by how you know i pay attention to how men dress mm -hmm. and one of the things something shifted 
when my moon went into Taurus by progression a few mm. years back, um, I, you know, my senses became a lot more acute. I used to go to the gym, but I always thought it was drudgery before that. And then when the moon went to Taurus, I, I saw it. I, I enjoyed going to. The, I mm. think what was concomitant with that was also an interest in fashion. Like, mm. and my father was a good dresser. Mm. Um, or he liked to talk about fashion. And he was, you mm-hmm. know, he liked to talk about coordinating. I don't, I don't have his fashion sense. I mean, our fashion senses are different. I mean, mm-hmm. he was a lot more flashier. Mm-hmm. I like for like the cool, mm-hmm. you know, poppy, pr- poppy professorial mm-hmm. style. Maybe that's mm-hmm. how I might define it. Poppy professor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, professor yeah. Poppy, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. where it's not too academic, but enough to make co- colors pop. I like... Um, mm-hmm. You know, like I like to have a some flash of of color, especially reds and oranges, mm-hmm. to get away just from the staid blue mm-hmm. um, and grays mm-hmm. or blacks. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how I might think about it. And then you know, I, some inspiration from my gay brothers and you know my gay mm-hmm. brothers. <laughs> right. You know, like because right. I mean, and I think about that a lot. I'm like, why are gay men such good dressers and coming up with these combinations? You know, in combinations of of clothes and and styles, you know, I don't I don't have an answer, but I just take notes, you know, <laughs> right. and I'm not afraid. I mean, I, okay, I'm not going to necessarily wear a skirt, um, <laughs> but you know, I, I know many gay men who don't wear skirts, but just in terms of other things too, um, I think that's still fascinating, you know, just to have like mm-hmm. a because men don't seem, to, especially when you get older, they don't seem to think about how they present themselves as much, right. or try to be cool like as if they're a kid again i'm like dude you really shouldn't be wearing that right <laughs> and, and maybe i shouldn't say it like that i'm trying being i'm being judgmental i guess in some sense mm-hmm. but i'm like i don't have to try to look 26 to feel 26 mm-hmm. i can just you know dress nicely mm-hmm. yeah yeah no that's what it, it was i i your picture brought me joy when i first saw it because it was on the the astrological society of connecticut i'm like oh you know i'm really i just got a good vibe for it because it was it actually made me think of my grandfather because he used to wear all these hats mm-hmm. so and I, I sometimes like to wear cardigans so you know it made me think of that a little bit um just my grandfather's style um yeah but thanks. okay so, yeah yeah no and just a really you know like you said it's classic but you have a boppy you know, still upbeat style. Anyways, mm-hmm. so let, let's talk a little bit about that. So, you know, because, you know, I said in the beginning, your lecture was postponed. So, and I know you're, you're you know, there's so much to it, but in astrology, uh, you know, the sixth and the twelfth houses, they can be difficult houses. And, and what you were, were saying, um, what I had read in your lecture, it's the scary houses. So can you give people a little bit just, you know, and even for people who don't know, what what are the scary houses and maybe what are some things they can do to help uh, ameliorate some of the issues with those houses? So the scary houses are the sixth, the eighth and the twelfth. Mm-hmm. The reason why they are seen as that, with the exception being the second house, is that these houses are said to have an aversion or a 150 degree or 30 degree relationship to the ascendant, the first house. Right. So the eighth and the sixth, that's clearly visible. And then in terms of the 30 degree marker, that would be the 12th. And that particular version, not being able to see the ascendant, the marker for where you rise literally into the world. Um, I, I talk about these as representing 
especially the eighth and the sixth, representing particular costs for mm. the quality of life or mm -hmm. being alive. So the eighth house, the cost for being alive or living is death and taxes. Mm -hmm. And the cost of being alive is kind of the retinue and the routines and maintenance that you must conduct in order to stay healthy. Mm -hmm. If you don't do that, then you end up in the 12th house, which is the opposite mm -hmm. house, which is likely the hospital. So mm -hmm. in this age of Corona, if you don't take the precaution in terms right. of washing your hands and other things, right. which is more the sixth house and changing your routines, mm -hmm. then the next result could be the 12th house. Yeah. So yeah. the the way in which I look at them, and this is explored a lot more in the, in the lecture, is I... I go through history and I look at it from a classical point of view, a psychological point of view for the houses, you know, in terms of what pretty much is the 20th century. And mm -hmm. then I introduce a point of view that synthesizes them that I call the soulful point of view. Mm -hmm. And it's it's looking at the dimensions of it at, from more an inner experience. So, for instance, the mm. sixth house becomes more so a place where you can have um, embracing the sense of the sacred um, mm. in your your routines, but almost mm. as ritual, mm -hmm. where you become more conscious of what you do. And the eighth house, um, in terms of talking about the cost of it, is where you can release yourself from certain needs of control. Mm. So a lot of times, you know, it's the fear of death that compels so much out of us, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Which really can prevent us from embracing life. Mm. So, I mean, that's kind of the encounter of the, of the eighth house. And then the twelfth house, I I encourage people, and this is something I do in sessions even as, as well, I encourage people to embrace the twelfth house almost like a padded room. And a padded room has two implications, or at least two. One, the padded room can be where you're isolated, quarantined for some particular problem, where like, you know, let's mm -hmm. say it's mental or you're... Like, you know, being in a padded room, but a padded room can also be where you insulate yourself for a particular purpose, like a studio. Mm -hmm. So the 12th house can be a way in which you insulate yourself or come to more an understanding for where you've extracted costs, you know, like whether that's eighth or sixth house reality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, kind of understand more your inner reality mm -hmm. rather than being fearful of that inner reality. You know, it's called classically the house of the bad daemon. And I think mm -hmm. it's not so much that the daemon is bad. It can be your encounter with it can be scary because it is completely a mystery. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of embracing the mystery, which is kind right. of where you and I started, interestingly enough. Yes. Yeah. So we're about out of time. I actually you made me think of one place that could be the padded room, could be the holodeck on Star Trek. Because <laughs> yes, the I guess because the 12th house can get into fantasies. Mm -hmm. and you know, that being in dreams and all that. But is there anything else uh, you'd like to mention? I mean, like I said, you have the hopefully the lecture coming up at the Astrological Society of Connecticut. And I'll, that's in June, June 15th. That's in June. What's the, what's the date again on that? I believe make, it's June 15th. June 15th. Okay. And, and anything else you got coming up you want to tell yeah, people? Yeah, you know, inshallah, Lord willing, um, we have NORWAC, um, which may be virtual, but we'll see after the 31st. Um whether it'll be virtual or it'll be in, in person in Seattle. So we have Norwalk, and then we also um, have, I'll be up in Edmonton, Alberta. Again, mm -hmm. all of this is still tentative. You mm -hmm. know, 
so those are the plans for in the immediate vicinity. I'm trying to think anything else. No, that's pretty much it. Um, May is kind of chalked with Norwalk and then mm-hmm. the end of May, well, mm-hmm. Alberta. And then, of course, uh, we hope everything is safe in September for ESAR 2020. Mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to that lecture because I'm going to be talking about the astrology of policing. Mm. It's something, you know, that's been in the works for me. I don't know. I want to say 30 years. I mean, I've been studying the police. Um, yeah, pretty much 30 years. Mm. And astrology, yeah, uh, at least 30 years. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a tie-in of, you know, one which is more of a casual interest and hobby with something that's been, you know, a dedicated career. Mm. So it's kind of bringing those two together. And that's what I'll be talking about in ESAR 2020 in September. Okay. On September Absolutely. 11th, in fact, I believe. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, absolutely wonderful, Samuel. Thanks so much for coming on. I, this Thank is you. great. This is great. So this is Dan Beck signing off from the Star Love Podcast. And remember, if you love the stars, they'll love you back. On the next episode of the Star Love Podcast, we'll be featuring astrologer Ariel Gutman. We discussed Ariel's unique work with the Venus Star Point, how the Venus Star Point plays out in one's life, and how you can learn to use the loving energy of this special astronomical phenomenon. Thank you for listening, and please rate us on Apple Podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring a future podcast, email james at intermakeup.net.